So we've actually been working our way week by week through one of the least read books in the whole of the Bible, and I think we can see why, can't we? It started with this agrarian crisis far away, and it became a temple crisis long ago. So Joel's world is not exactly our world, is it? But verse by verse, we've watched slowly as the crisis comes home. And week by week, it started to look a lot more like our world, I think, a lot more like our problems today. And through the book of Joel, we've been forced as a church to talk about what happens when life goes wrong. And we've addressed some of the most difficult subjects that there are. We've talked about bereavement, addiction, and divorce. On the podcast this week, we're talking about eating disorders, mental health, and STDs. Uh, There is no subject unsuitable for church. The enemy would love us to believe that there is. And that way, Satan might prevent the light of the gospel and grace from shining upon some secret corner of your life that no one knows about. But God does not want that sort of a church. So he writes us a book about crises, Joel. And he writes us another book, 2 Timothy, telling us to preach from books like this, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, including this book of Joel, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If we are to obey the Lord, We are not just going to preach the same little sermons over and over every week and drink the colostrum of the lectionary for the rest of our lives. We must graduate, I think, to grown-up food, to meaty passages of Scripture, if we are to take the full counsel of God with any seriousness. And what happens to us when we do this? What happens when we tackle difficult biblical subjects as one body Together, naturally, we second-guess ourselves. Did I say too much? Did I reveal too much? Have I gone too far this time? Have we gotten a bit too real? Should I dial it back? Famously, the author Brené Brown, and she's not my theologian on every point, but she's very good on this, she gave a TED talk on the subject of vulnerability. And after this talk, she says she felt so embarrassed that she hid in her house for three days until a friend finally said, you look awful. What is happening to you? And she said, I just confessed my most humiliating stories in front of 500 people. And worse, she said, they filmed it and they're going to put it up online. What if it's watched by one or 200 more? At this point, in the second TED talk, the audience laughs because some estimate that first talk has been viewed 50 million times already. It's become so popular that she then gave a second talk on what it feels like, what you go through when you're vulnerable, when you reveal a bit too much or feel that you have, what you go through as a secondary process and what the emotions feel like when you share a crisis. This is not new. 
Joel essentially does the very same thing. Having encouraged us as a body to confess, now he talks today about the feelings that come up when we do. And saints, the strongest feeling that will emerge when you share your crises is the feeling of shame. We're going to talk about shame today. What is it? What is shame? Well, the Hebrew word in Joel means more or less what we mean when we use the word shame or ashamed, which I just think Paul's the story is a remarkable thing, that we've got this book that feels so long ago, so far away, so weird, uh, and yet actually their very word really means exactly what our word means. There's a very common human thing going on here. But uh, Hebrew is a rich language in a lesser sense. Their word shame or ashamed also means confounded or confused. A a bit like, why did I just say that? (laughs) What am I doing? That kind of a thing, you know, have you ever said something and regretted it? The Hebrew word just has a hint of that. The Greek word that we heard in Romans, because Romans also references shame, includes the idea of being suffused with shame or disfigured by shame, like, like your face has been scarred by, by shame and everyone can see it. So together with the Hebrew and the Greek, the biblical word for shame gives you this, this sense that a person is overwhelmed by this feeling inside, uh, overwhelmed by, by the exposure of what they've done, so overwhelmed that they go to the mirror and they look at their face and they don't even really know who they are anymore. You hear this, don't you? And when someone does something wrong and and they confess it on, on TV, they say, that wasn't me. That's not the real me. Those aren't my values. A sense of the person being torn in two. Shame, I want to suggest today, is a secondary crisis within you. It's what goes on inside of you when people find out about your primary crisis. And uh, in some ways, shame, the secondary crisis, the feeling that comes up when the first thing is exposed, is even more fundamental to who we are. It's an identity crisis, I think. The journal Scientific American says, in shame, we feel humiliated, exposed, and small, We want to sink into the ground and disappear. Shame makes us direct our focus inward and view our entire self in a negative light. The psychologist Gerald Fishkin, author of The Science of Shame, tells us that the parts of the brain responsible for our feelings of shame also govern our reaction to threats and the fight-or-flight response that we often have in those situations. This explains why when someone feels ashamed, often what they do is get angry or run away. It's that same part of the mind. Mark Twain said, man is the only animal that blushes or needs to. It's human. It's normal to worry about what other people think of you. And many of us worry about that too much. And as a result, we live with the burden, the weight of shame for the whole of our lives, even in church, we feel burdened by it. I'm going to suggest to us this morning that in the iPhone era, with everything 
filmed and posted online in almost real time with people built up and torn down every single day, often building themselves up by pointing out who should be ashamed and then themselves getting caught for the same sort of thing. In this world, the cycle of shame is only getting worse. So there's the etymology, the pop theology, the psychology, the philosophy, the sociology, and the technology of shame. But what does God say about it? It's a bit more important, is it not? Joel chapter 2, 26. Let's turn to Joel. Joel 2, verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Remember, these people are starving. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. The promise is that God will give to them an abundance of things and then they'll no longer feel ashamed. But do you see how God in the midst of this reference to food and shame also talks about himself? To me this suggests not only a uniquely human response to a crisis, that secondary feeling of shame, but also a uniquely religious response to a crisis as well. As believers, when we suffer a crisis, not only do we feel ashamed about the thing we've done or that has been done to us, like everybody does, but we might also feel a bit ashamed of God or ashamed of our faith perhaps, worried about where we stand with God. And people will come up to you, non-believers will come up to you when you're suffering as a Christian, and they'll, they'll say to you, why are you going through this? I thought you were supposed to be a Christian. Have you done something bad? Or, or, or is God bad? Is God weak? Why do you worship a God who lets that kind of a thing happen to you? Are you going to give up on him now? Have you had it with Jesus now that you're going through this crisis? The surrounding nations for the people of Joel were essentially doing this sort of a thing. The Baal worshippers and the Molech worshippers and the Chemosh worshippers and the Asherah worshippers. They were gathered around and they were looking at what Yahweh had supposedly failed to do. And they were mocking the people of God and saying, where's your God now? Your God is a loser, they were saying. And as they mock God, these onlookers. God makes a remarkable claim in verse 25. It was my great army which I sent among you. I did this to you, says God. It was not God's weakness that brought about this crisis. It was his power. And it was not his malice. It was his love. He did it for a reason. Now, not every crisis that we go through is God doing it to you. I would suggest that the majority of bad stuff that happens to us is merely the result of being in a fallen world. But sometimes God can attack the comforts of this life if they've become a barrier to you. If they've become the thing that stands between you and God. And if he is good and if he loves you, he will take those things away. Even if that process is very painful Indeed, God looked at his people and he'd made a promise to those people to be their God and he loved them. 
but he saw that created things were harming them, were dragging them away from him. They were competing over things. They were snatching things from one another. They were never satisfied with what they had. They always wanted more, and they were consumed by the things that God had meant for them to consume. They were ruled by the things they were meant to rule. And God, we heard two weeks ago, was jealous for them. Not jealous of them, jealous for them. He yearned for them to be restored to himself. He yearned for them to have blessings that way exceeded the material things they had. Material blessings for sure, but more, eternal blessings. This is what God had for them. And desperate, his heart breaking for them. Painfully, he takes away the things they'd worshipped instead. The material world for the people of Joel had become a curse. They'd settled for it. Now that it's gone, all of it, and they have nothing, crisis gives way to renewal for the people of God. When I was in my mid-twenties, and I was wondering if I might be called to leave a secular job and learn how to lead a church. I had a, a friend in the faith, a much older minister called Art. And one night, Art took me for a drink, and he said to me that, like me, he'd been working for a law firm in his early 20s when he sensed a very clear call from God. But he decided not to heed the call, not to do it. And instead, he'd stayed in his job, and he'd done very well in his law firm. He'd progressed through the ranks until he himself had become the senior partner of it. And uh, then one day, around the age of 60, he suffered a massive heart attack. He woke up on a hospital bed, millimeters from death, suffused with a profound sense of shame. He woke up feeling ashamed. He knew that he disobeyed God. And in doing so, he knew that he had wasted almost his entire life. He kept saying to himself, I'll get round to it. Maybe I'll just pay off this law debt and I'll just graduate and I'll just work my way up. I'll become a junior partner. Every five, ten years, he kept putting it off. He'd never got round to it. And uh, Art was really careful to say to me several things. He said that a church job is not superior in any way to a secular one. He said an ordained church job is not superior in any way to a non-ordained one. And he said that a paid job is not superior in any way to an unpaid one. He said that Christ forbids distinctions like that and lofty ecclesiastical titles as well. And he said that the holiest job you can do is the one that God wants you to do. But he had been given a very clear, specific call. And he had directly disobeyed that thing for most of his life. And so here he was, lying on a bed, wondering if his life was basically done, ashamed. Instead of God saying to him, I'm done with you, what God said to him was, how about now? Very clearly, how about now? What a God of grace. And then prophetically, the Lord gave to my friend Art, gave him a new life verse. Verse 25, I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten. And Art said that as he pictured his glittering career, described as a sort of insect-nibbled stalk in a plague-ridden 
field. He just wept. He wept in the bed. And uh, he realized in that moment that God was going to give to him more than he had missed out on. That he was going to give him even more. His shame turned into joy. He said the grace and abundance of God gave him a depth of peace that he had never known before. Crisis became renewal for that man of God. I don't even know if he's a man, actually. He could be an angel because he has only ever turned up in my life at points of crisis. And whenever anything goes really bad, art just actually turns up. The night my visa was denied for like the eighth time for this actual job, Art emerged from nowhere with advice. It is a, an absolutely remarkable thing. Uh, maybe, maybe you know him too. And uh, if you think it's wonderful that God does things like this, creates friendships across generations like this, uh, just look with me at verses 26 and verse 27 and look not at what it says, but look at the structure of how it's written to see something quite remarkable. God is offering to restore way more than things. Verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Provision of things. And praise the name of the Lord your God. Presence of God. You can be close to God again. No matter what you have done. You can sense the presence of God again. Even though once you were far away. Now you can draw near. And, God says, my people shall never again be put to shame. It's covenant language. My people. Though we've been faithless, he remains faithful. We belong to him. And because we belong to him, we never need to go through this again. So provision, presence, the banishment of shame. Now verse 27. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Even more presence of God. And that I am the Lord your God. Even more presence of God. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You see how fascinating the grammar is of this little section, these two verses? See how he tells them about food once? Food, that's all they've been able to talk about and think about for two chapters. He mentions it once. He talks about shame twice, and he talks about himself three times. I guess it's a lot easier to feel physically full than it is to believe that your reputation has really been restored. And it is easier to believe that your reputation has really been restored than it is to believe that your relationship with God himself has been restored. So three times he says, I'm with you. Three times he tells them the most important thing. But he does care about how you feel. So twice, God addresses that deepest feeling of shame. He knows what our hearts are going through as a result of this crisis. He knows that this crisis, actually the secondary crisis in many respects, is even worse and more real to us than the primary one. And so twice he says, my people shall never again be put to shame. This was written a long time ago. We do not need to have any shame in this room ever. How can he say it? 
How can God tell us that we don't need to feel ashamed? Can it just go away? How does shame just go away? And not just go away, but go away and never come back. Well, the answer is it does not just go away, of course. As Ben said last week, it is transferred, given over to someone else. And this giving over of shame has everything to do with the presence of God. Let's turn very quickly to Romans 10, 9, our second lesson. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus died a shameful death. To be far more precise than that, Jesus died your shameful death, the one you deserve. He took our shame upon himself. And the weight of the shame killed him. He died under judgment as a consequence of sin, in utter shame. And yet God vindicated Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead to vindicate us on our behalf. We've identified with the death of shame and renewal in Christ Jesus. God sent a deadly crisis upon himself for the purposes of redeeming us. And he saved us from eternal shame. Beth Moore says, we think that we could never go back after shameful behavior. In Jesus, we always get to come back. No one gets to put shame on a child of God. We are covered by the blood of the lamb. This is what the cross of Christ is for. We can hold our head up high. We are covered by the blood of Christ and in him is full redemption. What a quote. I'll see you a Beth Moore and I'll raise you an Apostle Paul. Romans 10, 11 says this. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is terrifying to confess the things that embarrass us the most. But you made us a promise and you repeated it. So Father God, we simply turn to you again. We simply turn to you. We ask God that as we do, we would be healed and restored and set free. In Jesus' name, amen.